Matthew 6, uh, 9-18, I've entitled the message, uh, The Disciples' Prayer. And let's uh, pray together. Lord, we ask now that you would minister to our hearts as we open your word and study together. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, we are in Matthew. Uh, the theme is Christ the King. And we are in the section here in chapters 5-7, through seven, the pronouncements of the King, proving his judicial right to the throne as seen in the wisdom of his kingdom teaching. Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah King. He came calling people to repentance. The way into the kingdom is through repentance and faith. True repentance uh, results in an, what I call an inside-out righteousness. What is on the inside works its way out in the life. In contrast, the Pharisees taught an outside-in righteousness. That is, they thought through outward legalistic rituals, they worked their way to righteousness. Well, that's backwards. The ultimate issue before God is the heart. You see, it's with the heart that one believes under righteousness, as Paul says in Romans 10, 9 and 10. Being comes before doing. As we are right in our heart before God, then it demonstrates itself in the life. And this is where maturity and spiritual growth come in. Well, Jesus taught that unless a person's righteousness exceeds that of the outward legalistic righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, they will by no means enter the kingdom. Well, in Matthew chapter 6, uh, Jesus deals with three forms of piety common known uh, to the Jews in, in their Jewish religion. And those three things are this, almsgiving, prayer, and fasting, which are dealt with in the first 18 verses of Matthew 6. In each case, Jesus emphasized practicing these things in a Godward way instead of an outward showy way, indicative of hypocrisy. In Matthew 6, 1 through 8, Jesus addressed the issues of proper almsgiving and prayer. In 6, 5 through 8, he emphasized how not to pray. And now in 9 through 15, he teaches us how to pray. First, how not to do it, not like the hypocrites, an outward showy way. But here's how he says you should pray. And that's what we will be zeroing in on this morning. As I say, this is commonly called the Lord's Prayer. But in truth, uh, this is a prayer Christ could never have prayed because it includes asking for forgiveness of sin. And Jesus never committed any sin. More properly, this should be called the disciples' prayer. This is Jesus teaching them how they should pray. If you want the real Lord's prayer, you go to John chapter 17. That's the real Lord's prayer. Well, let's pick it up. Matthew 6 and verse 9. In this manner, therefore, pray... Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, there's no indication that Jesus ever intended this to be prayed in the form of a mindless uh, mantra. Simply quoting it by rote as if that somehow has significance. In fact, such a practice is really contrary to what Jesus just said in verse 7, where he said, in praying, do not use vain repetitions. It's okay to repeat just don't do it in a mindless, vain manner. Now, when Jesus says, in this manner, pray, it indicates that he's giving us, uh, he's giving us a sample, if you will, 
a sample way of praying, not a ritualistic formula. As taught by Christ, we should keep these themes and emphases in view as we pray. And certainly it is fine to literally pray through this model prayer as long as we do so sincerely and thoughtfully. A footnote here, a, a very similar prayer to what we have here in Matthew 6, 9 through 13 is found in Luke 11, 1 through 4. Uh, they are very similar, and yet it seems that uh, it relates to two different times that Christ was teaching. He was teaching basically the same thing uh, two different times. So there are a few differences, but there's a lot of overlap. What prayer is taught by Jesus really begins with an emphasis on God as our Father. You know, believers are the ones who really have the privilege to pray. If you don't know God as your Father, you don't have a prayer. Not really. Uh, you have no access to God. You know how you get to God, right? Right. <laughs> we need a mediator. And there's one mediator. There's one go-between between us and God the Father. He's our high priest. He's our access. That's, by the way, why we pray in Jesus' name. We're saying, I have access through Jesus. Uh, we come to God in prayer through Jesus. Only believers have this privilege because only they have uh, an high, the high priest, Jesus Christ. Only they have a relationship with God through Jesus. So prayer begins with recognition of God as our Father. Now, on a few select occasions, God was recognized as Father in the Old Testament, but then mostly in a national sense, in conjunction with the nation of Israel. Personally, recognizing God as Father was really essentially introduced by Jesus. This was not, a, this was not common to the Jewish way of thinking. They didn't think in terms of God, in terms of Father. They th thought of him in terms of this majestic one, the eternal one, uh, the great one, and all of these things. But, but not so much did they relate to him as Father. Uh, the word Father, the Greek word, corresponds to Abba in the Aramaic, uh, which was the common language spoken of by Jesus. It's a very tender word, uh, in nuance, sort of like uh, the affection of Papa. In today's world, the term father speaks of a relationship of sovereign care. As father, God provides, protects, and disciplines. He is the ultimate authority figure, just as in the family, the father is the ultimate authority figure as ordained by God. That's a politically correct, uh, incorrect statement, right? Yeah, it is. It's a biblical one. He is our Father, and yet note the emphasis here on Him being in heaven. God is omnipresent, but the emphasis on Him being in heaven emphasizes His transcendence. He is exalted over all. He is our Father, relationally, but He is also high and exalted in heaven, transcendent. After recognizing God as Father, the first emphasis is for God's name to be hallowed. This expresses a worshipful desire. The desire is for God to be properly honored. And of course that starts with ourself. The term name represents God for who he is. His name is his person and all that he is. It represents his very being and character. Hallowed is the idea of holy. So the, the prayerful desire here is that God be treated as holy. 
God, may your person be treated as holy, is really what's being prayed. Now, prior to the time of the kingdom, God's name has often been profaned, and is often profaned. That is, treated lightly or in a common way, not not in a sacred manner. It's profaned and not hallowed. This prayer that God's name be hallowed, that is honored as holy, has application for now. It should certainly be our desire that he be hallowed in terms of how we treat God. But it's broader here, I think. There's a kingdom view as he continues on. And only uh, in the kingdom will we really see God's name properly hallowed as it should be. And God's, going to, God's working towards this end. Uh, Ezekiel 36, 23, God says, I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. God says to Israel, his people, you're responsible for this. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. God's going to reveal himself as the great holy God in the context of Israel in the last days. Well, because of Israel's sinfulness, God's name, his person, was profaned among the nations. The second coming, the second coming is going to change all of that. Uh, Malachi chapter 1. For from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place incense shall be offered to my name and a pure offering, for my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. That is ultimately going to be fulfilled in the kingdom. This is what hallowed be your name is really praying for, that God's name would be honored and reverenced as great among the nations. By the way, it's not enough just to mouth these words and honest uh, Earnest prayer for God's name to be hallowed seeks to live accordingly. Fittingly, the prayer for God's name to be hallowed segues into the prayer for the kingdom to come. Verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. One thing is very obvious. Uh, The kingdom had not yet come because Jesus instructs his disciples to pray that it would come. The kingdom is yet future, that is the kingdom reign of the Messiah. Uh, There are actually three kingdom aspects as we see in scripture. There is the universal kingdom, which is always in place. God is always on his throne and he is always sovereignly in control. And so in the universal sense, I mean, that's always in play, always in place. But then there's the intermediate kingdom intermediate meaning after the present age and before the eternal state, also called the millennial kingdom or the mediatorial kingdom. And then there's the eternal kingdom. And so we have these three aspects of kingdom truth represented in the scriptures. The dominant kingdom emphasis in the scripture is that which relates to this intermediate millennial kingdom. The rabbis in their literature called this the coming age, uh, the coming messianic age. This is when the Messianic kingdom, looked forward to by the prophets, and as presented by Christ, will be fulfilled. And uh, just an overview as far as where we add, as far as biblical events on the timeline, we are living in the church age here. God's building a forever family, both Jew and Gentile, called the church. 
And we're going to be the bride of Christ forever. That's, that's the church, the body of Christ. Next event is the rapture, perhaps today. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? That'd be great. None of us going to look back and say, oh, bummer, I was hoping to be tomorrow. No, it's going to be great. And then we have, you know, God's judgment on the world that follows. He takes his people out, brings judgment on the world. And then we have the second coming where Christ comes to set up his kingdom. A 1,000-year reign. And uh, then that segues into the eternal form of the kingdom. So uh, this is where we are. This is the kingdom we're talking about ultimately in terms of uh, praying for the kingdom to come. We're looking forward to that time in the kingdom. Now, it is uh, the millennial form of the kingdom, as I say, that we're praying for. And we are praying for Jesus to come and set it up. Uh, No one is going to set it up for him. This uh, this theology, it says, well, we're going to get it all in place. And then when we finally get it set up, then he's going to come. No, no. He comes and sets up the kingdom. We don't set it up for him. Well, is this kingdom theme that is mentioned eight times in the Sermon on the Mount. So it's not a small theme. It's a dominant theme. The idea of the, of the kingdom relates to Messiah's rule where he will exercise absolute undisputed dominion. And so Christ tells us to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, and again, this will be fulfilled in the kingdom and, and we are praying to that end. Now, in the absolute sense, this will be perfectly fulfilled in the eternal state, uh, in the eternal state of the kingdom, where there will never again be any more sin. During the millennial kingdom, there's still some sin represented, different places a little bit. He rules with a rod of iron, and yet uh, there's still a little bit of pushback at different places uh, during the millennium, but not in the eternal state uh, once we get to that point. Well, God-honoring prayer begins with an emphasis on God. It's all about Him. It's all about His name being hallowed. It's all about submission to Him. The focus in verses 9 and 10 is on God's program involving His name, His kingdom, and His will. This is our first priority in prayer. It's not about us. It's ultimately about God, your program, your name, your kingdom, your will. We want to submit to God's program, first and foremost. It's not about us. Now, uh, verses 9 and 10, as I say, focus on God's program. But verses 11 through 13 focus on the needs of people. And I think balanced praying involves both. You say, well, I'm going to be really spiritual. I'm just going to pray about God's program. I'm never going to mention any personal needs. No, that's not balanced. There's a balance here. Uh, The first emphasis is God here, as brought out by Jesus. But we also pray about human need. And it begins in verse 11 by saying, Give us this day our daily bread. Now, our daily bread corresponds to our daily need. This is a recognition that we are dependent upon God. Day by day, we are to depend upon God to meet our ongoing needs. Now, in thought, this really kind of corresponds to God's daily provision of manna back in the Old Testament. Isn't it interesting? He didn't say, oh, I'm going to load you up for a month at a time. You know, we don't have to do this all the time. Go through this, uh, you know, uh, going out collecting manna every day. That's kind of ridiculous. I'm just going to give it to you in a bundle here. You know, I'll drop bales. (laughs) No, he didn't do that. Every day they had to go out and collect the manna. Now, it's interesting. We are dependent upon God. But then we also need to act in response to our prayers. We need to be humanly responsible. Uh, They still had to go out and collect the manna, right? Say, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. 
Okay, there it is. Now you have to go collect it. Yeah, that's the way it kind of works. God often answers prayer by way of human responsibility. Verse 12 continues. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now again, remember, this is the prayer of a child of God who already knows God as Father. In the Bible, there is what we call penal forgiveness. And there is what is called parental forgiveness. In view here is parental forgiveness. This is not a prayer for salvation. This is a prayer of a child of God who already has salvation. This is the the prayer the disciples are to pray, not non-disciples. Now in salvation, we are forgiven the penalty of sin once and for all. This is the believer's forever position in Christ. It never changes. We are forever forgiven. As Burke read for us out of Colossians, that, that list, that long list of all of your sins, past, present, and future, was nailed to the cross. All of our sins. It was nailed there. That's why we remember and we celebrate. And we're saying, praise the Lord for such a Savior as this. Just a few verses to underscore this. Colossians 1.14, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Hebrews 10.14, by one offering, that's the cross offering, he has perfected forever. Perfected, you can't get any better than perfected. Perfected for how long? Well, just until you mess up. No, no, no. Perfected forever, those who are being sanctified. There's an ongoing process at work in our lives. Uh, progressive, practical sanctification, but there's a positional reality perfected forever. Hebrews 10, 17, he adds their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. It's not coming up again, not the penal aspect of sin, not coming up. So the position of the believer as forgiven is forever settled, but our walk with God still needs maintenance. And when we mess up in our walk, we still need to get right with our father. We still need to be forgiven in the sense of parental fellowship. Let me illustrate. I have four children. And I used to quote to them, you know, obey your parents that your days may be long on the earth. <laughs> you know, well, let's, let's understand. If you want to live, you need to obey. <laughs> I had a little fun with it, but uh, you know, there, there is that emphasis in the Old Testament for sure, which is quoted in the New Testament. But. I have four children, and you know what? They are forever my children. And they'll always be my children. There is zero danger of them being kicked out of my family. That's true, right? Yeah, 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 that's true. (laughs) That's true. However, as children, sometimes they would do wrong things. And there'd be a little disruption in terms of parental fellowship, right? Yeah, there'd be a problem between father and child. They hated that long walk to the office. It was, you know, walking the plank. It was tough. This is the picture here. There's a problem between God the father and his child. The child has sinned and needs to get right with the father. God is still their father. They are still forgiven in the penal sense. You can't ever change, uh, perfected forever in our positional sense. But they are not right in their walk. This is dealing with the walk. They need parental forgiveness to restore unhindered fellowship with the Father. 
Their salvation is unaffected, but their fellowship is. Psalm, uh, one, uh, Psalm 66, 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. This is, this is a, a believer. You know, I'm not, if, if I've got sin in my heart, God's not going to respond to my prayers. Uh, Peter writes to husbands, dwell with them, with your wife, with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers not be hindered. You don't treat your wife right. You don't have power in prayer with God. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This relates to our walk, the maintenance of our walk. It's not a matter of, well, I'm getting saved all the time, confessing 1 John 1, 9. No, this is maintenance in terms of our walk. The prayer asking God to forgive our debts refers to our moral debts, which is to say our sins. In the cross-reference of Luke 11, it is specifically stated as sins, where Jesus says that we should pray and forgive us our sins. But before you pray this prayer, you really want to think about what's being said. Jesus is telling us to ask God to forgive us just as we have forgiven others. Did you catch that? Forgive us our debts. How? As we forgive our debtors. It assumes that we have forgiven those who have sinned against us. And on that basis, we are asking God to now forgive us. So in in saying, it is really saying that uh, God in the same way I have forgiven... Now I'm asking you to forgive me. But what if you haven't forgiven others? Well, you're stopped right in your tracks. Don't expect God to forgive you in a parental sense. Don't expect God to forgive you if you're not willing to forgive others. Stanley Toussaint says, It is impossible for one to be in fellowship with God as long as he harbors ill will in his heart. If you refuse to forgive others then you cannot be forgiven by God in the sense of being right in your walk. It's kind of scary to think about how many believers, professing believers, walk around never really being right with God because they are not willing to forgive others. This prayer is very conditional. Now, salvation is not conditional. You believe you're forgiven. This relates to our walk. It asks God to forgive us on the basis that we are willing to forgive others. Now that deserves some serious contemplation. Often we want to claim 1 John 1, 9, saying we have confessed sin. But what about Matthew 6, 12, which requires that we forgive in order to be forgiven? Here's a principle related to our walk. Forgiven people are forgiving people. Howard Voss says, A believer who refuses to be reconciled to a brother is living in a state of sin. His refusal to make things right is itself a sin. Now, I have seen believers get in a fight and then miserably carry on in that state until they die. And you probably have too. It it truly is a pitiful thing to behold. The sin of unforgiveness is huge. 
If there's one emphasis that Christ makes stronger than any other emphasis in the Lord's Prayer, the disciples' prayer, it's this emphasis. That's how important it is. Now, looking at it from another angle, the the positional angle, we should be willing to forgive because we have been forgiven all in the penal sense. Paul emphasizes this angle in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. And how did God in Christ forgive you? Of everything, right? Of everything. You say, well, there's a line with me, and you cross that line, and it's an unforgiveness on the other, on the other side of that line. Is that the way God treats you? No. From whatever angle you want to look at it, we as God's people are to be a forgiving people. As those positionally forgiven, we should forgive. As those seeking maintenance forgiveness in our walk, we must forgive. John Walford says, The Christian already forgiven judicially should not expect restoration in the family relationship unless he himself is forgiving. So I'm asking right now, everything I've ever done, would you please forgive me? Uh, You have to. (laughs) I mean, if you want to be in fellowship, well, what about the other way? Yeah, me towards you too. All is forgiven here. Verse 13, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, people have struggled with the first part of this, this verse 13 for years. The problem, you know, it says, lead us not into temptation. Is God somehow... Does he tend to lead us over here into temptation? You know, uh, that's the issue because uh, James 1.13 plainly says God does not tempt anyone. And we have a plain statement. Now, he allows people to be tested, but he doesn't directly tempt anyone. So if God does not tempt anyone, why would we ask him then to not lead us into temptation? Seems like a contradiction. Well, here is a case where you want to back up and think about this through the lens uh, of the entire counsel of God. Now, it is true that God does not directly tempt us, but it is also true that God is sovereignly in control of all circumstances involving the whole of life. This prayer is actually asking God to help us avoid falling into temptation. It is a recognition of dependence upon God and the need for his guidance to help us avoid falling into temptation. You see, when it comes to temptation, we're no match for Satan. We need God's help. And this prayer recognizes our need of God's leading to avoid the pitfalls of temptation. The sense is, lead us in such a way that we don't fall prey to temptation. Lead us away from it. Help us to avoid it. We need this kind of help from God. Just as we are dependent upon God to meet our daily physical needs, so we also are dependent upon Him for our spiritual needs. We are a very needy and dependent people. And wisdom prayerfully recognizes this truth. And one of the key areas that we wrestle with all the time as God's people in our walk is in this, issue, in this area of temptation. We are constantly dealing with it. You know, the devil gets up on... He doesn't even get up. He stays up all night, you know. But uh, he's constantly doing what he can to make us fall. 
every day. You're going to face it today. I'm going to face it today. Something's going to come up. What are you going to do with this temptation? It's going right there, staring you right in the face. Well, praise the Lord. We have some instruction. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful. Our answer is found in God, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. What is this way of escape? Well, it's looking to God for help. Is Lord, lead me not into temptation. Help me not to fall into temptation. Hebrews 4, 15, 16, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are. Yet without sin, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What's the time of need? When we're tempted, when we're tempted to show you all the more that the prayer is for divine help in avoiding the snares of temptation. The remainder of the verse says, but deliver us from the evil one. There is the problem, the evil one. That's Satan. That's Satan. The devil is ever looking to ensnare us in sin. He goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. 1 Peter 5, 8. One of the titles for the devil is the tempter. To deliver means to rescue or to save from. The devil is doing his thing and we're no match for him. We need deliverance. We need help. With the devil. So this prayer is a plea for God to help in the midst of satanic temptation. We need to rely on God. We are dependent upon him to rescue us out of these perilous situations. We need his delivering power. And you know, it no longer shocks us. This Christian falls into sin or this or and, and sometimes they're not Christians at all, but, but sometimes they are real Christians who really do fall terribly hard into sin. Well, how should we then pray? This should be our pattern of prayer as instructed by Jesus. Starts really with worship. Desiring that God's name would be hallowed. Submission. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Physical dependence, our daily bread, spiritual maintenance, forgive us where we messed up. And spiritual dependence, deliver us from the evil one. A footnote here, the doxology here in verse 13, uh, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen, is not in the older manuscript, sadly. I mean, that's a great way to end this prayer, don't you think? (laughs) Some scribe thought so, and he inserted it. Uh, But... uh, It is a beautiful way uh, to pray, but it's uh, evidently a scribal insert. None of the older manuscripts contain it. Uh, We do believe, however, it is biblical. It's not wrong to pray this because it's actually, in effect, a quote from 1 Chronicles 29.11. It's called a liturgical, therefore, interpolation. But uh, here in 1 Chronicles 29.11, yours... O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory, the victory, and the majesty for all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. So you see, you get it from there, right? The power, the glory, the kingdom. It's all represented there. So I wouldn't make too much of a big deal out of this. It is, it is biblical. It's a biblical prayer. It's right out of 1 Chronicles 29, 11. 
Now, we tend to end the Lord's instruction on prayer at the end of verse 13. We say, here's the Lord's prayer, the disciples' prayer, uh, 9 through 13, right? But in truth, his thought in verses 14 and 15 on forgiveness carries through from verse 12. Thus, verse 12 through 15 are really a unit dealing with the key issue of forgiveness versus unforgiveness. In our spiritual lives, this is a key issue as emphasized by the Lord. He's putting stress here. Now, in this vein, note that verse 13 is not to be understood in isolation. The key issue in context is the temptation related to unforgiveness. Now, we all feel this pull. Someone does something and we're tempted not to forgive them. You know, they really, this was not right. We don't want to let it go right away, do we? Or do you instantly forgive all the time? Probably you wrestle with this a little bit, just like I do, right? You have to work it through. We need God's help with this. It's not so easy just to forgive people that really do nasty things sometimes. And they do. We need God's help with this. It's interesting what Paul writes. You know, there was a situation that required church discipline and they applied it. But then they needed to also forgive when there was repentance. And he's instructing them on this score in 2 Corinthians 2, 10 and 11. Now, whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Lest Satan should take advantage of us. For we are not ignorant of his devices. How does Satan seek to tempt us? What are his devices? Well, in context, they are his temptation strategies to influence us to be, are you ready for this? Unforgiving. Unforgiving. When we are unforgiving, Satan has his way. And this is a key play that he runs time and time and time again. And very effectively, I might add. This is right out of Satan's playbook. The sin of unforgiveness. This is why Ephesians 4, 26, 27 says, Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. We need to be quick to forgive. Because if we're not, it quickly turns into bitterness, resentment. And this can cause great ruin, great damage in our spiritual walk. And we all struggle with this. It's easy to preach forgiveness, just not so easy to practice. Uh, C.S. Lewis said this many years ago. Everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. How true that is. Yes, wonderful forgiveness. Until I'm really grappling with this little sneaky person who's done this to me. (laughs) It's not so easy. And so, because of this, Jesus is not quite done making the emphasis on the need for forgiveness. You see, it's not optional. If you're going to truly be right with God, you have to forgive. It's not like you can say, well, I'll think about it. No, no, you don't have that option. Not if you really want to be right with God. Ed Glasscock says, an unforgiving spirit is sin. Let's call it what it is. 
And any continued sin affects the relationship between God and his children. Absolutely. And so Jesus says, verse 14, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. You see, Jesus states it both ways, positively and negatively. He states it both ways so that there is no way we can miss the emphasis. Charles Ryrie says, Notice that the only point the Lord emphasizes in the prayer is the necessity for forgiving one another. Now, a trespass is an offense or a wrong, a wrongdoing of some kind. This person has wronged you. It clearly was wrong. It wasn't right. So what should you do? Well, worldly wisdom says this. Try this for, on for size. When life gives you lemons, freeze them and throw them as hard as possible to the, at the people who are making your life difficult. You know, that, that's not wisdom from above. That's wisdom from below. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, forgive men their trespasses. And your heavenly father will also forgive you. Again, note this is speaking to those who know God as their father. This is spiritual maintenance in the life of a believer. God expects you to forgive, not retaliate. The flesh naturally wants to retaliate. Yes, they wronged you. Now how should you respond? Pray that a truck would run them over. No, no, you should not pray that way. You should respond, I should respond with forgiveness. The idea of forgiveness is to let it go. You want God to forgive you? You want God to let it go, right? I mean, we're talking about your daily walk now. Well, then you should be willing to forgive those who trespass against you. That's God-like. And you say, God, now I'm asking you to just kind of let it go, but I'm not going to let it go. It doesn't work that way. If you really know God as your father, then you should act accordingly as a child of God. You should reflect uh, God-likeness in being willing to forgive. But what if you refuse? What if you refuse to forgive? Well, Jesus is very clear. We don't have to wonder about that. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Oh, my goodness. I'm walking around, I'm walking in unforgiveness before my father because I'm not willing to forgive. That's a terrible place to live. If you aren't willing to forgive, then you will wander outside the will of God in the wearisome never-never land of unforgiveness. It's a miserable place to be. The joy is gone, the peace is gone, the blessing of God is gone, the sweet fellowship with God is gone. There are few things more miserable than a Christian who is unforgiving and out of fellowship with God. Miserable, miserable Christians. Such people become bitter, not better. They are spiritual cranks who waste away in the, the barrenness of unforgiveness, never really having what God intends for them to have, ever reliving how they have been mistreated. They never get beyond it. They refuse to let it go, and therefore it never lets them go. Forgiveness is one of the most godlike things we can do. In First uh, Peter 4, 8, Peter says, Above all things, have fervent love for one another. How does love show itself? Well, love will cover a multitude of sins. 
Now, I went to Bible school with a gal named Susan, and her mom recently passed away. And she recounted this memory, quote, whenever mom played the game, sorry, with my girls, anytime they'd say, sorry, and move her player back to home, mom would always say, I forgive you. (laughs) Isn't that precious? I love that. What a great illustration for life. Whenever someone wrongs us, what should our response be? I forgive you. That's precious before God. And those quick to forgive are also forgiven by God as they ask. I don't know about you, but I regularly need God's maintenance forgiveness. And therefore, I must be quick to forgive. Happy is the person who can go to sleep every night saying, all is forgiven. I bear no grudges against anyone. I I hope that's where, where you're at. I hope you live there. I try to do that as as a way of life. I don't know of any problem in my soul towards anyone tonight. As far as bearing grudges, bitterness. I I don't want to live there. D.L. Moody said this, The voice of sin is loud, but the voice of forgiveness is louder. A little footnote here. What about accountability? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What about accountability? Huh? What about that? That's a good question. Thanks you for asking again. Marty Hahn wrote, With a few well-chosen words, the tables are turned like a wrestler doing an escape in reverse. An offender regains the upper hand, and now victims are expected to forgive and forget. Oh, yeah. What about that? Well, as we consider the whole counsel of God, we do need to recognize the place of accountability. I mean, it, too, is a part of the counsel of God. In Matthew 18, Jesus said, if a brother refuses to repent, then a process of confrontation and church discipline is to be applied. Now, it is true that until there is repentance, fellowship cannot be truly restored as it should be. And you can't help what the other person does. Have you noticed that? It's very difficult to say, I am coming to you, brother, and I am going to insist that you forgive. And I'm going to make it happen. You just can't do that, can you? However, you are responsible for your own attitude. And as believers, we should always seek to have a spirit of forgiveness. Remembering the example of Jesus on the cross when he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Thus, we too should continually have a spirit of forgiveness. While at the same time, recognize that unless there is biblical repentance... There can be no real reconciliation. I mean, Jesus also recognized that from the cross as we study the whole counsel of God. As believers, we should constantly have a spirit that desires to forgive and desires people to be forgiven. However, we also realize that unless there is repentance, people are never really right with God or with those whom they have wronged. Paul said in Romans 12, 18, If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Well, And then Jesus goes on to address the subject of fasting in verses 16 through 18. And we will move through this rather fast. (laughs) Fasting and prayer often go together, but not always. You know, the Bible says, uh, pray without ceasing. It doesn't say, and fast without ceasing, right? Thankfully. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's interesting. Fasting is never commanded. In the New Testament. 
Neither is it forbidden. It's never commanded. But it is on some level assumed. Fasting, I think, is a little bit of a misnomer. A matter of a a play on words instead of fast. Perhaps we should call it slow. Because the idea of fasting is essentially the idea of giving up food for a period of time in order to focus on God. So the normal routine of life is slowed to focus on God. Fasting is indicative of setting aside the normal routine of life, including eating, to intensely seek after God. Verse 16, Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. So Jesus warns that fasting is not to be done with hypocritical showmanship. Spiritual hypocrites do do everything for show. It's all about them. Recall Jesus made this same emphasis regarding giving and praying earlier in the chapter. Kind of reminds me of this uh, meme here. You know, I'm, uh, I'm giving, I'm giving, but let's get a selfie while we're at it, shall we? Uh, let's, uh, let, let's, and then let me share it with everybody. <laughs> uh, no. Likewise, in the matter of fasting, Jesus says, don't be a play actor. Don't be a phony hypocrite who puts on a show like you're all pious when in reality you're not. Jesus really calls out these hypocrites. They made themselves look all sad and disfigured to make it obvious to everyone all around that they're fasting. Oh, look at that pious person over there fasting. They look terrible. Praise the Lord. (laughs) Uh, How perverse. True fasting is all about intensely seeking God, but these people were making it all about the promotion of self. Liberty Bible Commentary says, This disfiguring their faces was often done with dust and ashes is similar to the modern Roman Catholic concept of Ash Wednesday. I mean, you really want to do this, make a public show somehow of what I'm doing here? Uh, That's missing the whole point. Jesus said, Surely I say to you, they have their reward. That's it. That's all they're going to get. Before God, this counts for nothing. They have no lasting reward. In contrast, Jesus says, verse 17, But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, so that you do not appear to men to be fasting. But to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret, will reward you openly. Note, Jesus assumes that his disciples may at times fast, saying, when you fast, they are to go about their normal routine, applying their normal, regular hygiene regimen. Uh, they are not to seek attention. God knows, keep it between you and God, and God will reward you. Fasting is to be done unto God, which of course is the whole point anyway. Make it a matter of worship between you and God. In verse 18, we have the tenth use of the word Father in verses 1 through 18. Tremendous emphasis on Father all the way through. This is all about how God's children are to carry on in the matter of pious living regarding almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. Our focus is to be on God and God alone. We are to live for an audience of one, namely God himself. Now let me just real briefly in closing, uh, consider the theology of fasting and make application for today. Uh, In the Old Testament, there was really only one time where fasting was commanded, and that was on the Day of Atonement. It's described in terms of, you shall afflict your souls, 
Thus they were to humble themselves before the Lord. However, there's no parallel, no parallel prescribed self-humiliating emphasis related to fasting in the New Testament. In addition, the Jews had added other times of fasting to their calendar in the Old Testament. Even so, God rebuked them for not having a, a God-oriented perspective. Uh, notice in Zechariah 7, 5, he says, Say to all the people of the land and to the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months during those 70 years, did you really fast for me? For me? In the New Testament, we see some of the Pharisees fasted twice a week as a means of promoting their own self-righteousness. But there are not many verses related to the church that specifically address fasting. There are a number of verses uh, where in the inferior manuscripts, there was a, a, a scribal insertion. They kind of said, well, fasting and prayer go together. I mean, we'll kind of insert. We see this in places like Matthew 17, 21, Mark 9, 29, Acts 10, 30, and 1 Corinthians 7, 5. In the church age, there have been many assertions about fasting that are not really born out of the text of Scripture. There are many, uh, there, there are really no examples of religious uh, fasting in the epistles. And only two examples in the book of Acts. Acts 13, when the church was getting ready to send out the first missionaries. And also then in Acts 14, where elders were appointed with prayer and fasting. But in both cases, no instruction is given. And perhaps one reason fasting is acknowledged but not elaborated upon is because of the persistent danger of asceticism, ritualism, and mysticism. You see, in the early 2nd century, a Christian instruction book called the Didache said, quote, Let not your fast be with the hypocrites, for they fast on Mondays and Thursdays. That's those pious Jews. But you fast on Wednesdays and Fridays. <laughs> Uh, well, that was to completely miss the point. In recent times, fasting has become kind of a big emphasis in relationship to the spiritual formation movement. There's a lots of hype promoting it as an important part of sanctification. There's lots of hype, you see, but not much scripture. Uh, Jesus said this in Matthew 9, 14, 15. The disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and they will fast. Let me quote from Pastor uh, Gary Gilley. He says this, Consider that Jesus had promised his disciples that when he went away, he would send the Holy Spirit, who would be another helper, just like him. Another helper of a similar kind. As a matter of fact, Jesus said it would be to their advantage for him to leave and send the Holy Spirit to them. It seems to me that the period of time between the crucifixion and the coming of the Holy Spirit to indwell believers best fits Jesus' description of a time mourning that would be in keeping with fasting. The issue is this, since the Holy Spirit has come and since we are again in the presence of the bridegroom in the form of the Holy Spirit, should not Christians rather rejoice than fast today? If Jesus' disciples avoided fasting and, and feasted instead in the presence of the bridegroom, why should not the Christian do the same now that the Holy Spirit indwells him? Especially in light of Jesus' promise that it was to our advantage that he go away and send the Spirit. He says there are strong opinions on both sides of this issue. Some believe that fasting is the missing ingredient in the spiritual life of Christians today. If we would but fast as the Old Testament saints fasted, we would know God's power in ways we do not now know. 
But as we examine scripture pertaining to the church age, we discover some interesting things. While fasting is never prohibited in the epistles, neither is it ever promoted. There is no instruction to fast, and there are no prescribed fasts for the church. We must conclude in the absence of of either command or instruction in the New Testament concerning the subject, the fasting is not prohibited, and therefore a believer is free to fast if he chooses. But since it is never commanded or even recommended for the church age, we must assume it is not a necessary ingredient for the Christian. As a matter of fact, fasting seems to be one of the areas specifically addressed by Paul to be a, a, a place of personal conviction. If you want to fast, do so, but don't require it of others. Don't make it a test of spirituality or expect it to aid in your sanctification. Jesus' emphasis was not on fasting, but on the joy of his presence. In the presence of Jesus, through the ministry of the indwelling Holy Spirit, who could not be joyful? Just a couple of concluding thoughts. Uh, Curtis Mitchell writes, To imply, as some do, that fasting is an essential ingredient in effective prayer cannot be substantiated biblically. In the New Testament, much is said about prayer, but very little about fasting. Prayer is commanded, but fasting is not. The book of Acts refers to many instances of prayer, but no indication of fasting is mentioned. Well, there well may be times where we want to fast and pray. But it's not the norm. And there are no formulas given in the New Testament for how we should specifically carry out a fast. It's up to you, really between you and God, which is the emphasis of Jesus Christ here. As you intensely seek God in this way, keep it between you and Him, and He'll reward you. Well, someone as well said, if you want to put the average Christian to shame, just ask him or her about their prayer life. Someone else has written, prayer, is there any other practice so universally extolled and yet so often left undone by Christians? And in an age when true followers of Christ increasingly are marginalized, mocked, and despised, can we continue to act as if we don't need to cry out for God's help? Amen. Fellow Christian, how is it with your prayer life? Let us pray as Jesus instructed. It's not a matter of whether or not we pray. We are to pray. We just need to pray in the right manner as Jesus taught us to pray. We all need prayer, and we all need to pray. So with that in mind, let's sing, and then I'll pray. Let's, ha- let's stand and have our closing song. <clears throat>